Good evening, ASI family. I trust that you've had a blessed week. Here we are at our last meeting from the opening night where Brother Frank shared with us that it's time to be about our Father's business, taking us into the heavenly sanctuary. Throughout all the meetings this week, I think we've had a rich blessing. Amen? I know that I've been richly blessed by hearing the variety of speakers. I've heard that some of the seminars have been great. So it's a rich blessing for us to be together tonight. And I'd like to invite you that claiming the promise of God that as he has blessed us throughout the entire convention, he's going to bless us again. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, as the Sabbath draws to a close, as we begin to enter into another week, as this ASI convention draws to a close, we once again come before you, realizing in a small measure our great need, and yet confident that you will supply that need. As we open your scriptures one more time tonight, we invite your spirit to speak to our hearts. And again, we claim the promise that because you've blessed us in the past, we know that you'll give us a rich blessing now. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. All week long, again, our theme has been, it's time to what? Be about our Father's business. That's right. And what I'd like to study with you this evening is what, from my perspective, the conclusion of God's business in this universe. And from the inception of sin into this universe, it's been God's business to clarify the issues in the great controversy. From the origination of sin in the divine councils in heaven, however long that was past, before the creation of this world, Satan has been trying to obscure and misrepresent who God is. Satan has laid charges before the heavenly universe, before the council that meets in heaven, over God's rule, over God's justice, over God's mercy, over who God is. And from that time, it has been the Father's business to clarify the issues in the great controversy. And so tonight, I'd like to study with you the conclusion of those issues, and many of the texts we'll look at, I believe, will be familiar to many in this crowd. And yet, they are full of importance for us. And so I'd like to invite you tonight to turn with me to the book of Revelation. Let's have a special place in my experience, uh, an interest in the book of Revelation. I grew up in a Jewish home, did not grow up as a Christian, really didn't know very much about Christianity growing up. And when I was around 17 years of age, I guess it was just 17, I decided that I was going to hitchhike across the United States. I went with two friends of mine, and somehow in my backpack was a Bible. And it was a Bible that in the back of the Bible had an annotation of the different books in the Bible. And so it described the Hebrew scriptures, which I was acquainted with. But then there were little summaries of the New Testament books, of which I was not acquainted. And I remember thumbing through that uh, annotation in the back and reading what it just said about the book of Revelation. It said, you know, mysterious book, very hard to be understood, great perplexity. 
And so I thought to myself, in my young 17 years of age arrogance, I'm going to read the book of Revelation and understand it. And so I proceeded to open the book of Revelation as I was hitchhiking from uh, New York to California. And somewhere as I started opening the book, I turned to the first page, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure what that means. Talking about the things that much ta must take place, must shortly come to pass. And then I started moving in and there were beasts and dragons and lamb and a lion. And it was really way perplexing. And so I closed the book of Revelation and I decided I'd start reading the Gospels, which was probably a good decision for me at, um, to begin at the beginning. But since that time, and since my conversion, I've had an interest in the book of Revelation. And those of you that have studied the book of Revelation and an audience like this, I'm sure that many who have, you know, we realize it's full of symbols and illusions. But I'd like to look at a verse with you this evening that to me is one of the most perplexing verses in the book. It's one of the most thought-provoking verses in the book of Revelation. One of the most enigmatic verses in the book of Revelation. And it's found in Revelation chapter 20. The symbolism is not so perplexing, but the meaning certainly draws our attention. So if you have your Bibles, whether uh, paper or electronic, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, the end of the book of Revelation. And as you're turning, I'd just like to share a concern that I have that as we read Revelation, sometimes we become so, so focused in trying to discern the meaning behind every symbol that we miss the meaning of the book. In other words, sometimes we don't see the forest for the trees. And the purpose of the book of Revelation is to give us a deeper religious experience. And so as we read Revelation, and it's important for us to certainly understand the historicist context and the interpretation that makes the Seventh-day Adventist church what it is, but beyond that, or fuller than that, or in harmony with that, however the right way to say that is, the book of Revelation needs to transform our experience. It needs to reach our hearts. So Revelation chapter 20, um, before we read chapter 20, we perhaps should set the, excuse me, the context, the setting of Revelation 20. It's the end of the book, and it's the final climax. Revelation 19 describes the return of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Revelation 19, 11 first. Revelation 19 in verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it has a special name. What is that name, everyone? Faithful and true. Who is that? That is Jesus Christ. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the one who we can depend on what he says. Amen? He is the faithful representation of who God is. And in the great controversy, time to be about our Father's business, time to bring the great controversy to a close by the revelation of who God is. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He's faithful and true. And then it goes on to say, continuing in verse 11, and in righteousness... He judges and wages war. 
war is a major theme in the book of Revelation. There's a conflict in Revelation. Uh, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, there's a controversy over who rules. That's evidenced by one of the major, um, I don't want to say prop, one of the major objects in the book of Revelation, which is the throne. It towers all throughout the entire book of Revelation. And the throne, God has a throne, 24 elders have a throne. You and I, if we're faithful, will sit on a throne. The redeemed sit on a throne, but who else has a throne in the book of Revelation? Satan does. Chapter 2, in King James, it's called Satan's seat. Revelation 13, the dragon gives his seat in the King James. That's the same word, throne. He gives it to the beast. Satan has a throne. And the throne in the book of Revelation is contested territory. Satan is vying for the rulership of this world. And he does it through deception. But how does Jesus wage war? What does the text say? Revelation 19, 11. He rages war, how? In righteousness. He wages war in righteousness. In the book, Mount of Blessings, page 18, Ellen White tells us that righteousness is love. The very light and life of God. Everything that Jesus does is a manifestation of God's love. And he wages war in righteousness. On the 60s and 70s when I grew up, there was a slogan that said, Don't make war, make... Uh, some of you are old enough to remember. Don't make war, make love. Well, Jesus wages war in love. How can that be? Again, Satan is trying to deceive us. Satan is trying to paint the character of God with his own, the strokes of his own character. He's trying to misrepresent who God is. And the war is really over the concept of who is worthy to rule the universe. Is God really trustworthy? Can you really depend on him? Is he really pure, unblemished love? Is, does everything that God does, is every action of God, is it really pure, unadulterated love? Is it? Amen, it is. And it's time for us to be about our Father's business and reveal that love to the world. Now, the power of deception is very strong. Recently, I came across a, a book some of you might have heard about this in the, in the news recently. It's called Escape from Camp 14. And it's a story of a young man who was raised in a prison camp in North Korea. His name um, is Shen Dong Yuk. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. His parents were thrown into this prison camp uh, before they had met one another for some political crimes against the state of North Korea. And on, for good behavior, they were allowed to marry in the prison camp. That marriage entailed spending five days a year together. In one of those five-day periods, his older brother and himself were conceived. And the deception in the prison camp was so strong that the force of the totalitarian state just drilled into everybody's mind, don't trust anyone, don't try to escape, we are your protectors. And the Deception was so powerful that if you were to hear anyone talking about escape from this prison camp, you were to turn them in. Well, as Shin grew older, 
One day he came to visit his mother and his older brother, and his mother and older brother were talking about escape. Dutifully, he turned them in. He had been so deceived about what was right and what was wrong that he went to the authorities and said, my mother and my brother are planning to escape. The authorities then took him and tortured him for four more days to make sure that he had no more hidden secrets. After that, his mother and his brother were taken and they were shot, put to death. And as Shin stood there and watched his mother and his brother being put to death, whom he had betrayed, the only thing he felt in his heart was anger against them. The state had so perpetuated a deception that even the closest bonds of a mother and her son were completely torn upside down. Brothers and sisters, this world is a Camp 14. And Satan is doing everything he can to totally turn upside down our perceptions of right and wrong, goodness and truth. But I'm thankful that Jesus judges and makes war in what? In righteousness. Well, Revelation 19 continues. There's this battle that comes and the beast and the false prophet are taken. Those are two of Satan's emissaries in this world. They're captured, they're destroyed as Revelation 19 unfolds. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3, notice the verbs in the verse. Notice the verbs in the verse. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. Somebody should have said amen. Satan is thrown into the pit, he is shut in, and he is sealed. We would say in our English vocabulary, signed, sealed, and delivered. He is locked down. He is done. And if you or I were some corner where we could watch this off to one side, there would go up a great charismatic hallelujah from us as Satan was bound. Throughout the book of Revelation, he's been the antagonist. He's waging war. He's doing everything he can to disrupt, to place his throne above God, to overthrow who God is. And God's business has been to unfold his character. Now Satan is taken. He's in the abyss, metaphorically speaking. He's bound. There's nothing Satan can do. Praise God. I want that to take place, don't you? Now, this is where, for me, the most perplexing part of the Revelation is. The verse continues, Revelation 20. After these things, 20 verse 3, the last part of the verse, after these things, what happens? Revelation 23. After these things, he must be released from his prison. Notice it does not say he'll escape or he shall be released. He's going to find a way out. The word is he must be set free. 
And the four little, excuse me, the four-letter English word translates a three-letter Greek word, which indicates a divine necessity. The Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary says that this represents a moral and ethical necessity. And so as we're reading through the book of Revelation and we're coming to the end and Satan's bound and he's thrown into the pit and the wicked are destroyed, all of a sudden he must be set free? And the question arises, why must he be set free? And scholars have struggled with this. R.H. Charles, a uh, well-known revelation scholar from the early 1900s, he, his answer to this was, well, John just got tired at this point, and so he wanted to end the book, and so he did it in kind of a sloppy way. Well, I don't think that's true. I think John wrote exactly what he was intending to write. That as you're moving through the story of the unfolding of the great controversy, the Father's business, God clearing himself, and we come almost to the very end, it's not quite over. Something else must be shown. Satan must be set free. The moral and ethical imperative are the issues in the great controversy. And you would think by this time that the entire universe would be very clear as to what's going on, but my brothers and sisters, that's not yet so. Some things must still be demonstrated. And as Revelation continues, we know that at this time, Jesus has come in Revelation 19. The wicked have been destroyed at the end of Revelation 19. Other Bible verses tell us that God's people have been ascended, raised with Christ and for a thousand years, God's people are in heaven, judging and ruling. Revelation 20, verses 3 and 4 tell us that. But at the end of a thousand years, there is still some issues, there are st is still some issues in the great controversy that need to be cleared up. The Father's business has not yet come to a full completion. Revelation 25 tells us at the end of the thousand years, the wicked will be brought back to life. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 20 and look in verse 7. And when the thousand years are finished, they're completed, Satan will be released from his prison, verse 8, and will come out to deceive the nations. That's those who have been resurrected in the second resurrection which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Notice what his purpose is. Revelation 20 verse tells us what is his intention? To gather them together for what? Battle. The war is continuing. Incidentally, the King James and most translations say to gather them together for battle. The Greek actually has the definite article before the word battle, indicating this is the battle. This is the climactic battle in the war. In a moment, heaven and hell will come face to face. He's gathered them together for the battle, the final struggle in the great controversy, the final culmination of God's business in this world. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and they surround the camp of the saints, the holy city. Now, John kind of collapses and then telescopes certain images in this portion of Revelation. He 
kind of gives us an overview in Revelation 8, excuse me, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. And he talks about the holy city being surrounded by the wicked and the fire coming down. And then he goes back and he gives us more detail in verse 11. I want you to just imagine, if you will, what this scene is going to be like. Revelation 20 Satan's been bound for a thousand years. Finally, the holy city comes down. God's people have been with him for a thousand years. And that city comes down, and God's people watch Jesus resurrect the wicked. What an amazing scene that's going to be. Individuals from Cain all the way on down to the last individual to die raised back up, not in beautiful form like they were raised back up. And then they're there in the city, and Satan is now free to continue his work of deception, and he goes to gather everyone together for this final battle. And God's people are in the city. Jesus brings them back into the city, closes the gates of the city. And you and I are going to be there. The question is, where are we going to be? How could you imagine being in the city? Wouldn't that be exciting? I mean, we're going to be hugging and embracing and dancing. Did I say that? And, uh, you know, enthusiastic and just thrilled to be in the city. Yeah, but to be outside the city? Well, Satan goes out in his final attempt and he stirs up the wicked and he says, you know, we can take the city. And you're familiar with this passage of Scripture and the entire host of uh, Satan's angels and Satan and generals throughout history, they marshal up against the city, coming up against the city. And then Revelation 20 in verse 11. Revelation 20 in verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven have fled away, and there was no more place for them. Then I saw this great white throne and him who sat on it. It's the only place in the book of Revelation the throne is called great and white. Great in its immensity and its magnitude. White in its purity and holiness. And up above the city is raised up that throne on which the final coronation of Jesus Christ takes place. And as the wicked are marching up against the city with Satan at their head, inspiring them with all his deception, that throne is lifted up. Now, the throne in the book of Revelation, I would argue, is synonymous with the ark. And that ark had a mercy seat, a place of justice and mercy met one another. And where did justice and mercy meet in earth's history? It met at the cross. That's why Ellen White tells us in the book Great Controversy on page 666 that above the throne was lifted up the cross. And all that vast host, as they're marching up to the city, they see the cross. They see the crucifixion. They see the fall of Adam. They see the history of sin. But the primary thing they see is the cross of Jesus Christ. And heaven and hell are meeting face to face because outside the city you have full unbridled deception and self-interest and self-motivation. And in the city you have full and unbridled self-sacrifice. And hell has no chance in that battle. The powers and kingdoms of this world don't stand a chance before the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. 
And you and I need to understand and realize in our dealings with one another that power and manipulation and control, that's not the way of the cross. But humility, self-sacrifice, that is where real power is. That is who God is. The most powerful being in the universe displays his power through being willing to be crucified, to take our suffering, our, our curse, our separation, and not just for each one of us, but for every person that will be there on that day. The wicked are raised up from their first death to show that really they didn't have to die a second death. Christ died for them. Every person could have been in the city if they had only responded to the love displayed at Calvary. Desire of Ages, page 58, tells us that in the judgment, every soul will realize how they have rejected truth. And the cross in all its bearing will be seen. What a powerful thought. God's business, it's time to be about our Father's business, which is bringing the great controversy to a close. It's understanding how God rules in this world. God conquers through self-sacrifice. And that's how you and I conquer as well. Through the willingness to give all to Jesus Christ. To allow that love displayed at the cross, an unparalleled love which overthrows all power in this world, to allow it to transform our lives. Now my point this evening is this. Every one of us will be there on that day. We will remember this night. We will remember this convention. And whether the things that have been spoken to us this week have put us in the path of righteousness or we've turned away and moved to the path of destruction. But not only will every one of us be here, or everyone who hears this message at some time, not only will every one of us be there, but every person you have ever met in your life will be there. The person that cleans your hotel room, the person that you cut off in line while you're driving, the person that you haven't forgiven, the person that you have a grudge against, the person that believes differently than you do on women's ordination, will be there. Where will they be? It's our duty, brothers and sisters, to make sure they are in the city. Review and Herald, June 6th, 2000, excuse me, 2000. June 5th, 1900, Ellen White writes this, A soul hurt is often a soul destroyed. Let those who have light and privileges remember that their position of trust makes them responsible for souls. They will have to meet again around the great white throne the souls whom they have driven from Christ, bruised and wounded to death. A soul hurt is often a soul lost. We need to be about our Father's business and clarifying God's name and God's character in the great controversy by the revelation of who God is. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Weight of Glory, that we never meet a common person. Every person we meet has a destiny an eternal destiny. Are we helping them along the way? Or do we times hinder them in their path? 
When Shin was in the concentration camp, the prison camp in Korea, one day a man was brought in, a middle-aged man, who had more experience with the outside world. He knew about China, he knew about cows and chickens, things that Shin had never seen, and he approached Shin and they started talking about escape. This time Shin listened, and he thought, well, maybe we should escape. And so one day they were on the northern part of the concentration camp, the prison camp, and they decided now was their time to escape. And as they were trying to make their way through the wires, the man that was going first, the elderly, the older man, he hit some uh, electrified wires and he was electrocuted. He died. And Shin thought to himself, I've got to escape. And so over the body of this man who had just died, he crawled his dead body, insulating him from the electricity and made his way out into the, the North Korean countryside, eventually made his way to China, finally to South Korea, and now he works with an organization trying to raise awareness of conditions. And I understand that he's become a Christian as well. His escape was facilitated from Camp 14 over the body of a dead man. Our escape from Camp 14 in this world comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. Through the love of our Savior and our Redeemer who gave himself for us, who revealed what God is like. Brothers and sisters, it's not just an imaginary story. One day, earth and heaven are going to pass away. And the one total object of affection and attention throughout eternity is going to be the cross of Christ. Shouldn't we be about our Father's business? Shouldn't that cross and the character displayed there be the object of our great attention now? This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.